God in the highest. May our lives shout glory to God in the highest. May our souls shout glory to God in the highest. But may we not only shout such truths, may we also understand the heart that would uh, command his angels and his people to say, glory to God in the highest. Father, for your glory and good, let us learn these things today. For it's in your son's name we pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Luke chapter 2, verse 13 and 14 will not be the only text we'll be in this morning. Today will be a little more on the topical side. We'll bounce around to a couple other passages. But the heartbeat of today's sermon is glory to God in the highest, declared by the angels on this night. What an amazing sight. I don't want to try to flourish this moment, but I want us to not just brush past what's happening here in Luke chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. What an amazing moment this would have been. The sky suddenly cracks open. I mean, if you can imagine, I know most of you have terrible imaginations, but if you could just try to imagine with me for a moment, the sky breaking open, thousands upon thousands, likely ten thousands upon ten thousands of God's angels saying to these lowly shepherds, glory to God in the highest, all of them in unison, saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom God is pleased. Thousands and thousands of those who know none other than the glory of God, those who live in the presence of the glory of God. And they say, glory to God in the highest. This isn't just, in this moment, a statement of fact. It's a celebration. This is a celebration at this moment. They're excited about what has happened. They're thankful. They are praising God for what has has happened this night. It's a celebration. It's a joyful, exciting moment. The party of all parties, as they crack open the sky and say glory to God in the highest. Why? Because Jesus Christ had been born. Because God had come in the flesh. Because the plan that God has been working that was set in eternity past, and he's been carrying out meticulously in every moment of history, has culminated in this event where Christ has now come. And the 33 years of his earthly ministry has begun. 
with the moment he took his first breath. God in the flesh, now born of a virgin named Mary. But what I don't want you to miss is that, again, this isn't just a statement of fact. What is being displayed for us here is the excitement and the joy and the celebration of the heavenly hosts at this next step in God's plan. And so my my thesis, if you will, or my main thing I want you to walk away with today is this, is that deep abiding joy is possible because Jesus is a happy Lord. That deep abiding joy is possible for you and I because Jesus is a happy Lord. He is the perfect embodiment of his Father's happiness. And you see that pictured here in Luke chapter 2, verse 13 through 14, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. What I want you to see as we walk through today is the correlation between the joy of the Father, the joy of Christ, and our joy. I want you to see those three things are kind of being interwoven here as we walk through today. The first thing I want you to see is that the happiness of Christmas began in heaven. The happiness of Christmas began in heaven. Luke 2, 13-14, as we've talked about already. And suddenly there was the angel... With the angel, a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those whom he has pleased. Again, don't brush over this moment. Don't just read it like every other old hat Christmas cliche. There is something special happening in this moment. When the angels say, Glory to God in the highest, They are doing nothing other than obeying the commands of God. The angels didn't come up with this moment. They didn't come up with the reason for the moment. They didn't come up with the action that they chose to do in this moment. The angels do nothing except that which God commands. How we're supposed to live, they live. So every action, every word that comes from their mouth, every action that they do, every action that they choose not to do, the angels do exactly as God commands. God's the one who commands them to go say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Remember, God sovereignly orchestrates everything. The angels are simply walking that out. And what God wants at this moment is a happy and joyful declaration that is in the saying, glory to God. Glory to God in the highest. It's a happy moment. The gift of Christ from deep within the realms of heaven itself is being declared to the shepherds in this moment. 
Heaven is happy. God the Father is happy at this moment. And don't miss this. That means the happiness of this moment did not start with man. It did not start on earth. It did not start with traditions. It did not start with angels. The happiness of Christmas in this moment started deep within the heart of God and His plan. The joy of the coming of Christ started in heaven. For most of you, whether it's this year or other years of Christmas, I'm sure you had that one gift in mind for that one particular person that you were really particularly excited to give. You love that person. You care about them. You've gotten them this gift. You've bought it or made it. You know it will be a great blessing to them as they enjoy it, and it will be a great honor to you as they enjoy the gift you give. And when you give it, certainly there will be a great declaration of happiness by that person, right? Now, this is assuming they, you know, you don't get the big letdown, and they're like, oh, that's not what I wanted, Jim. But let's assume for the moment it all plays out as it should, as, it, as you had planned. In that moment, as that person declares their happiness over that gift, where did the happiness of that gift begin? It began in your mind, in your heart, in your plans, out of your love. You carried it out for their good. It's the same thing here. The angels are simply carrying out and proclaiming what God had wanted all along and what he was planning to do all, of long, all along. This was a glorious moment. It's not, it's not that it's just a, a weighty moment. Like, yes, it's a heavy moment. Like glory and weightiness. There's a, there's, it's part of the definition of glory. But, but this is... This is a good moment. Like This is a, a delightful moment. This is something we've been planning for and something we're happy has happened. And it began with God. Did you know, if you thought about the fact that God was happy to announce to his elect, my son has come. Think about that for a moment. That God was not begrudging in the sending of his son. He didn't say, oh darn, I got to go do this again. That God wasn't just okay with it because it's something he had to go do. But it was something that he believed was worthy of celebration. It was something God was thrilled to do. He was happy to give the gift of his son. To be among his people. He was thrilled to be in the flesh. Among his people. Even with the pain. Even with the sorrow that awaited. God was happy. His, the declaration of this moment shows you the joy of the Lord in sending his son. 
It was everything but begrudging. It was everything but just being okay with it. So much so that when he commanded his angels to say something, it was simply glory to God in the highest. Why? Because my son has come. Let me ask you a a couple questions. One question I could ask, but seems rather shallow at this moment, is do you sing glory to God in the highest and mean it? That question's too obvious. Let me ask you a different question. Do you know in your soul how happy it made God to send His Son? And what difference does that make in your joy? Have you pondered that? Our joy is not rooted in the things of this world. It is rooted in the Father Himself. And the Father counted it a joy to send His Son. And we celebrate this time of year every year. But my point is to you is how etched into your soul is the fact that God was joyful in sending His Son to this earth. That He didn't look at you and say, well, he, he sure did screw up. I guess I better send Jesus. I mean, you sure did screw up, and God's not denying that reality. But God was happy to send His Son to die for you and die for me, to live this life. Do you know in your soul how happy it made God to send his son such that he would command the entire host of heaven to say glory to God in the highest. My son has come. You see, the happiness of Christmas began in heaven. The second thing I want you to see is that Christ is the incarnation of his father's joy. Christ is the incarnation, or he is the, the, uh, the imprint. Think of Colossians, where he says he's the exact imprint of his father. Well, that includes being the exact imprint of his father's joy, of his father's happiness. What made the father happy made Christ happy. Later on in the book of Luke, you get to the parables of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the prodigal son. We don't have time to dive deep into all of those, but just a, a quick a glance through Luke chapter 15. Look at verse 9. It says, and when she has found it, meaning the coin, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, I tell you, again, this is Jesus speaking, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The, the picture being painted for us in Luke chapter 15 with these three parables is why Jesus does what Jesus does. He eats with sinners. He calls people to repentance. He uses tender words and sometimes blunt and harsh words. He heals some and yet lets others suffer. But why? 
Why does Jesus do this? Because ultimately, because he enjoys the things the Father enjoys. And the Father enjoys many things, but explicitly in this passage, what we are told is that the Father enjoys saving sinners. He enjoys. It's, it's not just a begrudging thing to him. He finds delight in saving sinners like you and sinners like me. You see the Father's happiness on display right here in Luke 15. He says, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Going to the story of the prodigal son. I'm sure many of you or most of you are familiar with the story of the prodigal son. The arrogant child wants all of his inheritance as if the father is dead. The father gives him the inheritance. The son proceeds to waste it all. When he finally gets to the end of his rope, meaning his pride is all gone every ounce. That's the, the point of this, the picture. He gets to the end of the barrel, the bottom of the barrel. There's, there's no more pride of self and self-righteousness left. It's gone. He heads home. And if you're not convinced his pride is gone, he heads home hoping that he can just simply be a servant in his father's house. No place of standing, just a servant. Again, the, the picture's layering for us, for us to grab a hold of the reality that he is at the bottom of his self-righteous barrel. Nothing left, it's empty. Praying he can at least be a slave in his father's house. Now remember, the, the father in this picture is the father in heaven. Just like the person finding the coin and finding the sheep, the, 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 the correlation of the parable is that that's the father in heaven. So as the son is returning, and he appears over the fence in the horizon... Look at what his father does in verse 20 through 24. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Again, another layer showing us that the son had come to the bottom of the prideful, self-righteous barrel. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and what? Celebrate. Let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Do you see the picture? Don't miss it. The son was on his journey of repentance. He owns his sin. He confesses it to the father. And what's the father's response? Bring my best robe. Put the robe on my son. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. This means more to me this year than it has in the past. Bring the best calf and kill it. Let us eat. And if you don't get the point of the picture here, he says, 
Let us celebrate. And if you don't get it then, he says again, and they began to celebrate. What is he telling us? He's telling us that the Father is joyful at the saving of sinners. He is happy to do so. And who is telling us the story of heaven's joy at this moment? Jesus himself. Jesus is proclaiming us to proclaiming to us the joy of the Father. Jesus indeed is proclaiming to us his own joy in this moment. But the story doesn't stop there. Again, it's one of the things I love in parables like this is that they just keep layering, just wanting to make sure you get the point. The story doesn't stop there. If you go on to read, the father rebukes the older son who is self-righteously grumbling, and he tells him to be glad. Why? Because your brother was lost, but now is found. He says in there, it is fitting to celebrate. It is fitting. What he's saying, it's right. It is good. This is the, the correct thing for us to do. This is what fits the moment. This is what's appropriate. Is that he was lost. He's now been found. He was dead. Now he's alive. And it is fitting that we would celebrate this moment. Do you think the father doesn't know of the sufferings that his son is, is about to undertake or undergo or the cross that's about to hit him on the back and, and the lashes that are, or the wrath that's about to be poured on? The father is 100% aware of all of these things as if it had already happened in history. And yet he says it is fitting that we would celebrate he was lost but now is found. When God's mission is accomplished, particularly as we see in this picture, the saving of sinners, it is fitting to celebrate. It is fitting to be glad. What makes Christ glad that we learn from this picture? That when his people surrender their pride and find their heavenly Father, and declare that all he has said is all that we need. That makes heaven glad. It's as if the angels are saying, glory to God in the highest. All that you need has come. He's here. He's in the flesh. Go and see him. The son realized, the prodigal son realized, there is nothing out here that I need. What I need is the Father. I just need to be in his presence. That's the, the point. I don't need the house. I don't need all of the accoutrements and all of those big, I just, I just need to be a servant in his house. If I can just be the, the doormat in the house, I'll be good. I just, if I could just be with him, that's the point. Let's run a few scenarios here. I got three. Three scenarios for everyone in this room. 
Scenario one, maybe you're not actually a Christian. Maybe you think you are, but Christ is not your only hope in life and death. Your own self-righteousness is, to some measure, which would exclude the option for Jesus to be your hope in life and death, if there be any measure of your own self-righteousness present. My question for you is, what's it going to take to get to the bottom of the barrel to repent and beg for mercy? Just make me a servant in your house. Second scenario. You are a Christian, but you struggle to repent. My question for you is, don't you know that it brings your father joy when you repent? That it brings him joy when you get to the bottom of the barrel and run back home. Some of us should pray, get me to the bottom of the barrel quicker. Maybe there's still faux joy at the bottom of the barrel that's keeping you from seeing the joy of the Father at your return. This could be a long season of prodigal son-like running. It could be an hour of prodigal son-like running between breakfast and lunch. But don't miss it, that the Lord clothes His Son with a robe and sacrifices the fattened calf and says it is fitting that we would celebrate. Or number three, you are a Christian, you do repent, you do it frequently, but it's often cold or indifferent or mechanical. I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. But rather, that's good, but there's something that's even better. My encouragement to you is that you too should know that the Father is joyful at the sound of your repentance. That that makes God happy. Those are the three scenarios. Let me land with this point here. There can be no circumstance more joy-stealing and fearful-inducing than walking in sin against a holy God. There is no circumstance more joy-stealing and fear-inducing than sinning against our Holy Father. Period. If the chasm between the hideousness of that and all the other circumstances that seem to steal your joy and, 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 raw, and, and induce fear, if the chasm between those two is, is not rather large, then I would implore you to read your Bible more. And yet... If our repentance gives occasion for the joyful celebration of our Heavenly Father, could you and I not walk in joy no matter what?
no matter what. If even that, heaven can celebrate. The repentance of a sinner. Then why could we not walk in joy no matter what? The third thing I want you to see is that Jesus found joy in keeping his Father's commands. Jesus found joy in keeping his Father's commands. So, so far you've seen that the happiness of Christmas began in heaven. At the coming of Christ, it's declared Jesus as he's telling the parables here in Luke 15, is showing us what makes the Father happy and thus what makes him happy. Jesus is not just in this moment of Luke 15 saying, hey, my Father's happy about these. What Jesus is saying is, "This, this makes me happy. This brings me joy. When that person who's lost is now found, when the person who's dead is now alive, when this person who's unrepentant now repents, this makes me happy. I love this. This is what I came to bring. This is what I came to redeem and to make possible. What also makes Christ happy was obeying his Father's commands. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 2. To be familiar. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And here's the key phrase. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The joy set before him was certainly the reward of the Father. Okay, so let's not miss that. That's crucial, and that's clear. The greatest joy imaginable for Jesus and for us should be, but for Jesus certainly was, being exalted to the right hand of his Father. To be in the presence next to his Father, where he had spent all of eternity. That's what Jesus had his eyes set upon. That was the joy to be had. That's the joy he was already living in because he believed so firmly that that was going to happen. We've talked about that in Hebrews a lot. Like faith is believing it so much as though though it's already there, it's already happened. So Jesus' faith is set on, as I walk faithfully, keeping the covenant that my Father has declared for me to keep, that then I will be exalted to his right hand. And he believes that so firmly as, as, though it's, as though it's already happened. So the joy that is set before him is already his. John Piper says this, the greatest labor of love that ever happened was possible, so he's referring to the cross there, It was possible because Jesus pursued the greatest imaginable joy, namely the joy of being exalted to God's right hand in the assembly of a redeemed people. 
But what I want to emphasize here is that Jesus was joyful as he obeyed the Father with his eyes set forward, even to the point of death on the cross. With joy, Jesus went. With joy, he obeyed. He was happy to obey the Father. He didn't begrudgingly obey the Father. He was happy to obey the Father. Like Joshua, he didn't swerve to the left, didn't swerve to the right. But he marched on straight. He was happy to do what the Father wanted, even when it was hard. That's part of the point of Hebrews here. Enduring the cross, despising the shame. What's he saying? He, he obeyed with joy, faithful to the end, in the hardest moments possible for any human being ever. You and I will never experience anything like the cross. So in the hardest possible moment for any human ever, he does so for the joy set before him. joy he did it. Jesus was happy in one hand as he held the cup of God's wrath in the other. Imagine that picture if you could. Jesus was not on the cross begrudgingly. He did not come to the earth begrudgingly. He didn't have his fingers crossed behind his back. He didn't do it with depression or mild discontentment or with grumbling or indifference and just going through the motions. But that's what we often look like, right? We come home from a day's work and the amount of joy we exude could be mistaken for you at your grandma's funeral. We sit down to discipline a child and the amount of joy we have looks like we've just stubbed our toe. We listen to a sermon and if someone could see your face right now, they might think you're standing in line at the BMV. Jesus obeyed with joy. Why is it that we do oftentimes too quite the contrary? Why? I think the joy set before your eyes is not the same joy that awaited the Father, but some sort of joy that you feel like you can conjure up with your own hands. If I could just have the day I want, I'll be joyful. If I could just be doing what I want, I could be joyful. If I could just, life could just go the way I want right now, I, I could be joyful. And so we walk in and out of this flaky and fleeting joy that those kinds of pursuits produce. Jesus would have never made it to the cross if he'd have given a second thought even to the same flaky joys that you and I pursue day in and day out. But Jesus had his eyes set on the Father. And what brought him joy was what brought the Father joy. That's why he was never at odds with the Father. And if the Father is sovereign over everything that happens, 
then that's why Jesus was never at odds with the Father in anything that ever happened. That's why he was never without joy in everything that happened. Because he always trusted the Father. He always knew that this is what the Father wanted. Every trial, every heartache, up to and including the cross. Jesus had an eternally eclipsing joy. What awaited Jesus brought a joy that eclipsed even the most terrible situation, the cross. The joy of being exalted to the right hand of God was greater to Jesus than any joy that could be produced from anything else. And so, when faced with the temptation to sin or to take the easy path, the joy of being with the Father so far outweighed the joy of the other option that it was never even a real consideration. Jesus was happy by what made the Father happy. My last point for us today is this. The Christian's tent should be the happiest. The Christian's tent should be the happiest. Meaning your home and the collection of homes represented here should be the happiest tents in town. If what I've just said is true, then our tents should be the happiest. I'm going to belabor this point just to hopefully etch it in there a little further, but that's essentially my point. You can go home now. Psalm 118, 14 through 15 says this, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the Righteous are in the tents of the righteous. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. My question to you is, are there glad songs of salvation in your tents? Yes? No? Sounds like it. If Jesus endured the cross with joy, then it is fitting that our houses would be full of laughter and joy. If it was joyful for heaven to send Jesus to rescue us, then our tents should be filled with joy. When we sing of Christ come, when we give gifts and the honor and name of Christ coming, our salvation has come. Look at the parallel. As Jesus is walking toward our salvation, he does so with joy. David says, he has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. As Jesus is living our righteousness out with joy, earning our salvation, David is drawing this correlation between our salvation and our righteousness and joy. Gladness should be in our tents if this is true. If Jesus walked through the cross with joy, for the joy set before him, then what excuse do we have to not be joyful? Hebrews 12 is making Jesus yet another example along with the saints that are mentioned in Hebrews 11. 
won't rehash all of this. He's an example, another example, following on the heels of Hebrews 11, of those who were so overwhelmed by the joy that God offers that they rejected the fleeting pleasures, quote-unquote, the fleeting pleasures of sin, and chose ill treatment in order to be in line with God's will. That's the picture of Hebrews 11. Jesus is another example. Look at verse 24. We'll just look at Moses here very briefly. Of chapter 11, Hebrews says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What's that a mirror picture of? It's a, it's a mirror picture, a foreshadowing of Christ, who, who, despising the shame, endured the cross for why? The joy that was set before him. The reward. It's the same thing here with Moses, the reward. If Jesus walked with joy for the reward set before him, and his righteousness and his spirit is at work in us, then why can't we? The reality is that we can walk through anything with joy because our reward is secured, and it's secured by none other than Christ and his righteousness. That's this picture in Psalm 118. The Lord is my strength and my salvation. He has become my salvation. Who has become my salvation? I mean, David's talking about like being physically saved and so on and so forth by God, but that's a foreshadow. It's a picture of what? Of Christ coming. Of Christ coming to save us. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. Who are the righteous? Those who have the righteousness of Jesus. And those who have the righteousness of Jesus should have tents busting and bursting with gladness. So are there glad songs in our tents? I personally have been most convicted of this this week. I don't just mean like... uh, just a general like picture of our home. Let's think like, uh, you know, in those moments when you're parenting, or you're in a disagreement with your spouse, or how about you're just walking from one room to the next? What about those moments? Are those moments bursting with gladness? Because your salvation has been purchased. Because his righteousness is yours. Because your tent has righteousness in it because Jesus is there. Because he has come in the flesh. Are you happy? Because the happiness of heaven sent Christ to die? To live, to die? Is there rejoicing in our homes? Is there gladness from the righteousness that is ours 
bought and paid for by Christ? Oh, people of God, that our tents would ring the loudest with glory to God in the highest. And peace among those with whom God is pleased. Who is God pleased with? Only those who have the righteousness of Christ. So glory to God on the highest and peace among whom? The tents that have the righteousness of Christ. That's our tents. That should be your tent. Again, during those tough moments at work, can you look at it with a happy face full of joy because your reward is secure and not based on that moment? Are those tough times in parenting? Can you look at your child with gladness? Because your reward is not wrapped up in their obedience. Can you give the spanking or the swat with gladness in one hand, sorrow in the other, because your reward is great? There will never be anyone rewarded outside of Christ like those saved by the blood of Jesus. For our salvation is great. Let me say that again. There will never be anyone on this earth outside of Christ rewarded like those saved by the blood of Christ and the presence of the Father awaits them. You can look at anyone else you want and you can see what they have or what they're going to have next week or next year and the profit earnings they might have or the kind of homes they might have. Or No one will be rewarded like those who will be rewarded with heaven's happiness that comes from the heart of the Father. Very briefly, as this tent is happy, what will this tent look like? John 15, 10 through 11, Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, why? Anybody know what it says right here? That my joy may be in you and that your joy would be half full, right? That your joy may be full. What's it look like? It looks like a tent that is knowing the Lord and all he has said. It looks like a tent that is obeying the Lord and all he has said. It looks like a tent that is loving the Lord and all that he has said. It all goes together. When your life is about that, that's the gist of John 15 with our vernacular put on it. When your life is about that, your tent will be filled with joy. Because what's happening in that moment is the righteousness of Christ is at work in your tent. The last thing 
I want to say is this. Unlike Jesus, you and I don't have to walk to the cross, but to die daily to our flesh and to walk through the onslaught of pagan sinfulness around us. And listen to me, church. If there's anything we should be reminded of on Christmas, it is this. Is that any day that you and I don't stand under the wrath of God is a day for joy. It's a day for joy. And if that doesn't spark joy, then you don't understand your sinfulness, and you don't understand God's graciousness and his mercy, and you don't understand what Jesus took. But if you do, it's like that saying, any day above ground, six feet above ground, or whatever is a good, I mean, I'm never six feet above ground, but five feet seven above ground. Any day above ground is, is a good day. Any day not under the wrath of God is a good day. Nothing compares to that. May we be like the angels then and say glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among us because of Christ's righteousness. Those who trust in Christ. Listen, heaven was happy. Christ, the Father rather, was happy to send Christ. Christ was happy to come. The Father was happy to send him. And we should be the happiest people of all. Let me pray for us. Father, may there be great rejoicing in our tents. May we, as we give gifts today, tomorrow, or the days ahead, or the days that preceded this, Father, may we do so with joy and happiness that you were happy to send your son, that he was happy to obey you. And if that righteousness is at work in us and your wrath has been taken from, then may our tents that are filled with your righteousness be the happiest of all. May there be joy in our faces when we discipline our kids. May there be joy in our faces when we work through a hard thing with our spouse or our friends or our church. May there be joy when our pagan rulers do stupid things. May there be joy in our faces coming from our tents when our neighbors look at our homes. When they see us through trials and they see us in triumph, may they never see us without the joy that should be present on our face. May the gladness of heaven exude from every part of our beings as we celebrate the happy coming of your son Jesus. I ask all these things in the name of your son. Amen.